Good morning, and welcome to the April edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. I'll be your host this morning. We're here this morning talking with Thomas Grieve, and he is from um, the California Institute of Technology, known as Caltech, Fine. easier to say. Yeah. He's been uh, here using the Green Bank Telescope for some time now, is that right? Yeah, I, I was, I've been here since the 18th of March, observing sort of every other day. When is your run over this time? It's uh, over on the 17th, but I'll be going back to California to, uh, on Saturday. But then hopefully I'll, uh, I'll get someone to cover for me uh, on the 16th and 17th. So mm -hmm. yeah, we'll see. Now you might have noticed that Thomas has an accent. That's right. So we'll go ahead and talk about that and get that out of the way. Where are you from originally? I'm from Denmark, mm -hmm. but I did my PhD in, in Britain, or in Scotland, yeah. And how long have you been in California? Only uh, half a year now, oh, actually. So only since, well, August, I guess eight months, yeah. So that's about it. Okay. But I like it there. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Nice and sunny. Yeah. A little warmer than Denmark, I guess. Yeah, and much less rain in Scotland as well. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm looking at your abstract here, and I see that what you've been doing with the Green Bank Telescope is looking at galaxies that are really, really, really far away that are basically that were formed in the early years of the universe. That's right, so these galaxies are the very earliest uh, galaxies. We see them basically as they form, so, and we see them at, uh, when the universe was only about 10% of its current age, so that's about, say, 1 billion, 2 billion years old. So we, we basically see these galaxies as they, as they form, as the stars within them form, and it's due to this intense star formation which they are undergoing that we can detect them because these galaxies which I study um, you cannot see them in the optical they're completely enshrouded by dust which blocks the optical light so you can only use uh, radio facilities such as the GBT to study um, other mo molecules or the dust the dust is heated by the stars and re-emits the optical light uh, which it absorbs the dust absorbs the optical light and re-emits it as heat or, okay. or fine infrared and that fine infrared emission you can detect so the the dust uh, in these galaxies is is part of the galaxies that you're looking for yes yes not in our own galaxy obscuring our, no. our Vision. No, these are intrinsic to the galaxies, and it's it's only by virtue of this dust that they've been detected. They were, this population of galaxies was detected only seven years ago, was discovered seven years ago only, um, and they... And how, they, how were they detected, first of all? How were they discovered? They were discovered with a telescope called the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii, using a camera, a very special camera, which sees at uh, millimeter wavelengths, mm -hmm. or submillimeter wavelengths. And this sublimeter camera is sensitive to the dust, to the emission from the dust. So people saw these blobs, basically, of sublimeter emission on the sky. And then they used optical telescopes to look for them in the optical, and they didn't see anything. And mm. uh, only by using uh, another NIO facility, the Very Large Array in New Mexico, were we able to uh, pinpoint the radio emission from these galaxies. And then we have been able to determine in some cases where we've got a very accurate position of these galaxies, we've been able to determine the optical counterpart uh, in, in some of them. So you can in some cases see something, yes, some if, light, some visible light if, coming. Yes, if you take an extremely deep image then you can see a little smudge of optical light, yes, but they're very hard to see in optical. That's why you need uh, the Green Bank Telescope. To, well, now, so we've detected the dust in them and now what I'm trying to, what I'm here to do is to try and detect uh, molecules molecular lines from uh, carbon monoxide, CO, which is mm -hmm. uh, what is basically emitted from cars. It's toxic, it pollutes the earth, mm -hmm. but uh, it's also 
one of the first molecules to be formed uh, in the universe uh, next to H2, of course, which hydrogen is the most abundant molecule by far in, in the universe. So tell us how it is that something like carbon monoxide gives off radio waves. Well, that's to do with the structure of, of the molecule. So CO is a very simple molecule. It it's consists of carbon and oxygen, and it has and the carbon atom and the oxygen atom uh, spin, so they rotate around each other. And so you get what is called rotational states, quantum states. And w a, a CO molecule can be in a high quantum state if it's, if it's knocked by, a, say, a, a, if it bumps into a, a hydrogen molecule, it gets excited to a, a high rotational state, and then mm -hmm. it decays to the lower state. And that transition emits a photon. Uh, at a very specific frequency. So I take a spectra here with the, the Green Bank Telescope of, of the, these galaxies, and then I'm looking for a line at a very specific frequency, and it, and it has a, a line profile, and th that line profile has a, a width, so, and that's because of the, the molecules. They move with respect to each other, so when they emit this light at this very specific frequency, uh, because the molecules move themselves, it has a, have a velocity, the light gets either blue or red shifted, as you may know, if an object emits light and it's moving towards you very fast, the light gets bluer, but if it's moving away from you, it gets redder. Sort of like when you hear a, an ambulance on, on, the, on the road and it comes towards you, it has a very uh, high-pitched sound, yeah. siren, and when it moves away from you, the, the, the sound becomes deeper, and it's basically the same effect, uh, the Doppler effect. But because these molecules move around very in, in a gas, it's a, t it's a gas. This line profile has a, has a slight width, but it's still a line profile. So you mm -hmm. can you can you know it's from CO when you detect it at that frequency. So okay, so you've looked out at these uh, these galaxies that are that are extremely far away, and you know they're there because you've seen them in infrared light. That's right. Yeah. And now you're using the radio telescope to look to see if they contain carbon monoxide. That's right. And yeah. they do. They do, yes. We've detected some, uh, not with the Green Bank Telescope yet, I have That's to say. Okay. Uh, we have detected uh, some with uh, an interferometer in, in France. But we, I think it's only a matter of time before the Green Bank will uh, uh, detect some, yeah, because we do know that, that some of these galaxies have actually uh, CO in them. And from the CO, you can get the, the total amount of gas. So remember, the CO compared to, to H2, the hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, which, which is the main constituent of the, of the gas, the CO has a, has a tiny abundance, it's like 1 to 10,000, right? But, but this, the H2 doesn't emit these rotational uh, uh, lines, it's a property of the H2 molecule, so we need CO to trace the H2. If you so know. you're saying that next to hydrogen molecules, yeah. CO is probably the next most abundant. It is, yeah. And if you know how much CO you've got, you can infer exactly. how much hydrogen there is, yes. and then what does that get you? That gives you then the total molecular gas mass of the galaxy, which is an extremely important number because it's the molecular gas which goes into star formation. Stars are formed out of, of gas. So if you know how much gas there is, and we know at which rate the galaxy is, is forming stars, which we can infer from these uh, observation of the dust, which I talked about before, we, we can tell how many solar masses, so how many suns are formed in this galaxy per year. So if you take that number and divide up into the total gas mass, right? you get for how long can you sustain this star formation. So that tells you, we know how much gas there is, we know how, how rapidly it forms stars, and then you can derive for how long can this star formation rate uh, be sustained. And it turns out that this star formation rate, these galaxies have very high star formation rates, and it turns out you can sustain this uh, star formation rate for about 
100 million years, maybe 200 million years, which is about roughly about the time you need to build up a very massive galaxy. So, so the numbers sort of fit that that from the the gas mass we can inf infer in these ga galaxies and the star formation rate, we we, we think we, we're pretty sure that these galaxies end up being the most massive galaxies we see today. Mm. So that they they are really the the progenitors of the most massive galaxies we see today in in the center of galaxy clusters. They're not at they're not the ancestors of, of um, or they're not the progenitors of, of small galaxies, but very massive galaxies. Yeah. Compare these huge galaxies to the Milky Way. Are they a lot bigger than our own? Yeah, they're they're bigger. So the, these galaxies they they evolve into what is called giant elliptical galaxies, which mainly reside at the centers of, of galaxy clusters. And our own galaxy is a what we call a spiral galaxy, which is formed. We think through this gradual buildup of, of, of what is called hierarchical merging of buildup of, of smaller units of, of Okay, gas. yes. We were talking before we got on the air mm -hmm. about the two theories of how galaxies are formed. Yes. Essentially they are, you either have one huge big blob of gas that contracts into a galaxy and yes. forms stars. Very early on, yes. Very early yes. on. Yes. Or you've got lots of little blobs of gas gradually merging. That gradually merge yes. together. That's right. So, which is it? <laughs> well, I think it's maybe a mix because there are sort of observational indications favoring both models, I think. So I think it's probably the, the last one, the merging, but with maybe the most massive galaxies forming in, in, a, in a single collapse or something reminiscent to that. Uh, it's probably a, a hybrid of the two, I'd say. That's so, my best. But these very, very distant galaxies, are these the most distant galaxies that have been discovered where you're seeing stars being formed? It's not quite. So there are some... Uh, even uh, more distant galaxies, quasars and, and high redshift radio galaxies, which are even further away, but they might, it's not clear what their evolutionary link is to these galaxies I study. So the, the galaxies I study are at a period in universe history where most of the galaxies form. So very early on, not that many galaxies formed, but then there was a period where a lot of galaxies formed. <laughs> mm -hmm. And that's sort of where I'm studying them um, because it's the most active uh, period. Are galaxies formed at that period formed out of just uh, these one big blobs as opposed to galaxies that are younger? Is there any evolutionary thing going yeah. on that way? I, I think the, the consensus at the moment is that, that very, very earliest galaxies we can see probably form in these single collapses, whereas the ones I'm studying maybe is more hierarchical. It's not quite clear. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it may be... A mix, really, yeah, yeah. It's it's it sounds. I mean, these models we have are fairly. I wouldn't say they're simple, but they're not. Uh, they're very descriptive. They're not that we d we don't understand the the detailed physics. They're so more like uh, recipes or models of how we think uh, galaxies form. Well, it's it's wrong to say we don't know the physics, but it's it's so complicated to calculate in in detail how the the gas collapses, how it cools, how the stars form. We just can't do it with present computers. So what? people who model these things, they do is they they apply some overall general recipes of what is the star formation rate and law in these galaxies and so on. And then they try and say in a, in a sort of statistical sense, what is the overall trend we see and, and what would we expect st statistically. Uh, so that's so it's the models are, are, are simple still, I'd say. Yes. Well, that's great job security, right? Because that's, there's yeah. so much more to learn about these galaxies and the way they form. Learn. Yeah, that's a lot to learn. Well, what about the difference between, you say that these galaxies you're studying uh, with the Green Bank Telescope and other telescopes 
are probably the ones that form these huge, giant elliptical galaxies. Mm -hmm. Why isn't the Milky Way an elliptical galaxy? I mean, why are there spirals and why are there ellipticals? It's got to do with, it's becoming clear now, it's got to do with the environment they're in. So in clusters, galaxies of clusters, you see uh, an abundance or density of elliptical galaxies because elliptical galaxies form typically when, when two disk galaxies merge they sort of merge and interact gravitationally and that sort of stirs up the galaxy, if you like, and, and they settles down into a, a spheroid or, or an elliptical galaxy, what we call a, a spheroid. Whereas in, in, in low-density regions, so outside the clusters, you tend to see uh, over-density of spiral galaxies. And the spiral patterns, I believe they come from sort of density waves traveling around. So you have uh, the gas is falling in and loses angular momentum, and when you when that happens, typically, and you have rotation, it settles down into a disk, very much in the same way that the solar system initially was a disk, and then the, the the planets formed from that disk, and sort of in the similar way, the spiral galaxies settle down into a disk that rotates, and you then get these spiral patterns from density waves traveling around the disk and compressing the gas uh, in these spiral arms, and in this co these compressed regions is where the, the young, massive uh, blue stars form, basically. And those are the ones you see when you look at a galaxy. You see the bright blue, massive galaxies, but between the spiral arms, there are still stars, but they're just older and more red and, and fainter, basically. So, so that's sort of how we think spiral galaxies form. But in, in, in clusters, as I say, because of the uh, very rich environment, there, there are a lot of galaxies in clusters, of course. There are clusters of, of galaxies, and that means you have more galaxies bumping into each other, merging, and that creates these elliptical uh, shapes. But in this case, these very old ones that you're looking at, they're going to be elliptical anyway? Yeah, they are, because we, we think that they, they will, um, they, these galaxies that we look at, they are the most massive galaxies, and we're pretty sure they'll end up being, as time goes by, they will accrete more and more stuff onto them, and they'll eat, we call them, other galaxies, they're sort of cannibals. And they will end up in the centers of galaxy clusters. And typically in, in, in clusters of galaxies, at the, in the center, we see these huge, massive uh, elliptical galaxies, giant ellipticals. And they just sit there in the center and dominate the galaxy, the galaxy cluster, if you like. And that's what we think these very distant galaxies will end up as. Because the thing is, when at that distance these galaxies are at, you really only can see with the, with the current sensitivity, even of the Green Bank Telescope, you really only can see the most massive luminous galaxies. The, the smaller ones, which we're pretty sure are there, they're just sort of too faint still. We need you know, more sensitive telescopes. Uh, so that's why the massive galaxies are a very important tool at the moment to study how galaxies form and, and the evolution of galaxies. Well, that's really interesting. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I find it fascinating that these things exist out there and only were discovered for the first time seven years ago. Yeah, I mean, that's, it, just, it just goes to show that, and the reason why they were discovered was that we, there was sort of a new window open on the universe, like w it was a new wavelength range, like typically before that, it's not entirely true, I mean, uh, but, but it's roughly true, <laughs> that before that you had optical astronomy, and you had radio astronomy, very wa long wavelength radio astronomy, and they were, those were the sort of, and you had x-ray astronomy, and those were the sort of dominant uh, areas of astronomy, but the wavelength of the regime stretching from the the mid-infrared, fine-infrared, and two millimeter wavelengths hadn't really been studied until 10 years ago, say, uh, because the atmosphere is very uh, opaque at those wavelengths, and as it uh, emits as well. So it's very difficult from the Earth to observe these wavelengths. But b due to very sensitive cameras being built and so on, it has become possible, and, and 
sure enough, there are a new, this happens almost every time you look at a new wavelength, you discover a new population of galaxies, and sure enough, there was a new population of galaxies being discovered then as well, yeah. Right. Yeah. Isn't, um, is Caltech not the home or the, the university that sort of runs this new telescope that can see in the infrared? Is Spitzer an infrared telescope? Yeah, it's, yeah it is. It's, uh, that's, it's a satellite, yeah. Spitzer, it looks in mid-infrared, uh, fine-infrared, uh, and it's... Uh, it's run by uh, JPL, Caltech, and uh, NASA, and uh, it's, it, that is going to—that is an, an amazing telescope. It's already given us tremendous new results, um, and that is—that's one of NASA's great yeah. observatories. That's they right. call it a, yeah. a really yeah. powerful yeah. new telescope yeah. that's just hit the scene not very long ago. No, no, it, it was launched in 2003, and uh, it's the, the reason why it's so powerful is that. It's it's outside the atmosphere, so you can you know it's it's uh, there's no atmosphere to blur the image or, or absorb the light or anything, and it it will also at those wavelengths you can look you can penetrate the dust and that gives you allows you to see through you can basically basically see to the center of the galaxy you can see through the dust which is in our galaxy and see what's going on at the center of, of our galaxy. You can also see planetary systems around other stars as they form. You can see the the it's now this is another huge discover its discovery which was made uh, a few years ago that we now know that there is hundreds of stars out there with planets around them massive planets so jupiter sized or larger planets not earth sized we haven't seen them yet they could well be there we just haven't seen them yet and with spitzer you can you can see uh, you can study how these galaxies sort of freeze out of the dusty debris disk around these stars. So a lot of young stars, uh, I have to say this is not my field at all, but it's sort of a very interesting field nonetheless. They have a um, dusty debris disk around them and, and they get the planets are believed to sort of form out of this uh, debris disk. And, and Spitzer will provide a tremendous new insight into how this goes on. So will you uh, use the Spitzer telescope to look at these I hope so. Far, I, I, far away galaxies that have dusty... Yeah, I, I've, I've applied for time to study them. I, have, I haven't been told yet whether I'll get the time, but uh, fingers crossed, yeah. Well, good luck. Yeah, thanks. We want to see some good pictures of them. Yeah. Maybe we can oh, see some images of them with that, do you think? Yeah, you, you will be able to detect them, but I'm not sure they'll be... Um, They're too far away. They, it will be a blob. They won't, yeah. be, they won't be spectacularly pretty. You, you need to look at something closer. To, I mean, Spitzer has produced many spectacular, pretty images, just not of very distant galaxies because it's just so hard Well, to but do. these are extremely cool galaxies nonetheless. They we are very cool. must say yeah, that yeah. these, yeah, these yeah. are awesome, yes. massive galaxies, even though yes, if we can't get close enough to them to see a pretty picture. That's right. Yes, right. <laughs> if, we, if we want to know how galaxies form and evolve, we need to study these galaxies, yeah. And for that, Spitzer and the GBT is, is world-class facilities, yeah. Well, excellent. We will we will visit with you again when right. you have some great GBT yeah. uh, results to share yeah. with us. Great. And thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Sue. Now I'm here in uh, Bob Anderson's office again. As we told you uh, back in February, we're going to be visiting with Bob during each Mountain Radio Astronomy broadcast so that we can hear from somebody that actually looks up at the night sky and the morning sky, and he can tell us what we should be looking for. So thanks for joining us again, Bob. Tell us, what's the first star that we can see at night this time of year? Well, on clear nights, the best thing that you can see right now is to go out right after the sundown. And as you watch the uh, shadow of the Earth coming up on the mountains in the east, you'll be able to see Jupiter right after the sun goes down. And it's uh, coming up right over the eastern mountains. It's the brightest thing in the sky right now after the moon and the sun. If you uh, wait a little bit longer and kind of scan around the sky, 
you'll be able to see Saturn directly overhead the first couple of weeks in April and then later on it'll move a little bit westward at sundown. Straight south is Sirius, the very brightest star in the sky and it comes out a little bit after Jupiter and Saturn and then in the west uh, as the sun goes down a little bit further the first couple of weeks of the month you'll be able to see the stars of Orion that we talked about last month and they're very easy to pick out. But on the other hand, uh, darkness is still present when most of us get up around 5.30, 6, 6.30. And you can go out and look at the morning stars as well. And around 5.30 you can go out and you can see the stars of the scorpion, Scorpius. And the heart of the scorpion is really easy to pick out. It's a bright red star. It really looks red to the eye. Named Antares. And its name means like Mars because hmm. occasionally people would get it confused with Mars in the sky. Because they're both reddish. Uh, but why is Antares red? It's not a planet. It's not red like Mars is. It's a red star. It's a red star. It's cooler uh, to our eyes. It, uh, cooler stars look reddish. The, uh, it's also a very large star and, so, and fairly close to the Earth as well. Okay. So it, uh, it's bright and a, a red color. If you look at the other stars in the sky, sometimes they appear to have colors too, if you look carefully, particularly the bright ones. Some are blue, some are red, and some are yellow. You mentioned um, um, Sirius as something you can see after it just gets dark as a very bright star. Does it have a color? Bluish. Kind of bluish? Blue-white. And it's very bright and very close to the Earth as well. So it's easy to pick out. Now we've been getting a lot of calls at the observatory and I know that I've been referring a lot of the callers or at least the emailers to you for information on this but yesterday wasn't there an eclipse of the Sun? Yes but it was uh, visible only in the very far South Pacific and I think it only went over one island in the South Pacific so it wasn't uh, easily visible here just a thin part of the sun was actually covered. You would still have to have uh, special filters to be able to see that and uh, only with a telescope for a few minutes could you have actually seen the eclipse. And the sun really wasn't covered up enough to make it look darker right? in the daytime even if you could see it. Two weeks from now the moon will also go through a portion of the Earth's shadow, but it's through the lighter part of the shadow called the penumbra. And only experienced observers uh, would uh, be able to tell that, and uh, it's, it's not something that uh, is something that we'll be very interested in. We'll, we'll know that it's happening because the calendar tells us, but we really won't be able to tell it. Well, darn it. And there was so much interest in this little solar eclipse. I mean, we've gotten so many inquiries and, and phone calls and things like that from people that want to come up to the observatory and look at it. We've had to tell them, no, you're not going to be able to see anything anyway. You have to wait until the year 2017. Okay. And in that year, there will be an eclipse that goes, if not right over us, it goes very close to us, where we'll be able to travel within a few miles. And uh, it will the eclipse path covers most of the eastern seaboard. So we'll see a total eclipse or yes, very close to it? a total eclipse. And they, 
if you have never seen one, they are very, very fascinating. They really are, and the, they don't happen very often for a particular location on the Earth. If you no. live in one place all your life, you don't get that many opportunities to see a total solar eclipse. Yeah, maybe once in a lifetime, but you know, somewhere on Earth, there's usually one or two a year. Would you, would you like to, uh, to help us understand exactly what an eclipse is, just for those listeners that may not know what one is? The two that get the most publicity are solar eclipses and lunar eclipses. A solar eclipse is where the moon passes between the Earth and the sun and covers up a part or all of the sun. Most eclipses are partial. They only cover a portion of the sun and still require special filters. Sunglasses are no good. Right. Uh, you can uh, suffer permanent blindness by looking directly at the sun with sunglasses. And so only filters that are made for solar viewing should be used to view solar eclipses. On the other hand, lunar eclipses are where the moon passes through the Earth's shadow and they are very safe to observe. Uh, there's no harm done in those other than a little lost sleep. And so it's uh, enjoyable to go out and watch those and they uh, can be either very light or very dark or even a reddish color depending on how much ash is in the Earth's atmosphere from volcanoes. The more ash after a big eruption, uh, the darker and the more reddish eclipses are. So the moon never goes completely black when it goes into the Earth's shadow, though. You can always still see it yes. during a lunar eclipse. Uh, unless you just you know, kind of go out casually and look. But if you know where the moon is in the sky, you would always see it. It, uh, it can get grayish mm -hmm. and, and dark or a dark brick red color, but uh, you'll always be able to see it. So that's just still some of the sun's light coming around the earth and hitting the moon? Yeah, through the earth's atmosphere. Through the earth's atmosphere. I have seen a what they call a total lunar eclipse. It was just a year or two ago and yeah. it was extremely red. It was an amazing thing. I've gone out to look at them before and been less than impressed, but this one was really spectacular, so it's always worth going out and taking a quick look anyway. Uh, they go through cycles too, and it'll be a couple of years before we actually see one in this area again. Okay, well we will certainly be back month after month. You can keep us apprised as to when we ought to be going out there and taking a look. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. We're over at the Science Center now visiting with Kara Rose, who's going to tell us uh, what's going on for the rest of April and probably a little bit at the beginning of May as well. Hi, Kara. Thanks for being with us today. Good day. First, let me begin with our upcoming events. Star Lab is offered every Thursday at 2 p.m. And the April High Tech Tour will be Wednesday the 13th at 3.30. Both these events require reservations and a fee of $3 per person applies. I think we've talked about this before in the program, but let me tell you what those events do entail. Star Lab is a portable planetarium that blows up and guests get to crawl in and we do an introduction to the night sky for that month. The high tech tour is a special tour through the lab area and the Green Bank Telescope control room. It's an area that most of the general public don't have access to on a regular basis. The next star party is scheduled for Saturday, May 7th, beginning around 8 p.m. This event is free 
It will be canceled if cloudy weather prevails, so you just have to keep that in mind. You might want to call that afternoon. The next Friday Film Fest will be May 6th at 7 p.m. The event is free. The War of the Worlds will be the feature for May. And that's an old science fiction movie from the 50s, I think. And it's based on um, H.G. Oh, Wells' novel of that same name. So if you're an old science fiction movie buff, you've got to come join us to see War of the Worlds. It's going to be interesting. Sounds like fun to me. Yeah. You can get pizzas that evening. The Starlight Cafe will take orders up to 4 p.m. And then you just let her know what time you want to pick up the pizza prior to watching the movie. So you probably want to plan to pick it up by 6. That way you can eat and have a leisurely dinner before the movie starts at 7. Second of all, we'd like to tell you a little bit about the Galaxy Gift Shop. We do have the spring sale continuing. It is a great time to save on select t-shirts, sweatshirts, and science kits. So if you're looking for a gift for perhaps a schoolmate or a visiting friend, something like that, it'd be a good time to come over and see what you might find. Third, the Starlight Cafe is, uh, of course, open in conjunction with the Science Center. It's a great place to have lunch. The menu has deli sandwiches, hot pretzels, soft serve ice cream, and more. So you, if you haven't been over for lunch, it's a, it's a good place to get away and enjoy the scenery. And last, I would like to invite the listeners to visit the Green Bank Science Center. If you've never been here, you need to come over. It's right in your backyard. Bring your families, friends, guests over. Through May 27th, the center is open Wednesday through Sunday, and guided tours are offered at 11, 1, and 3. Okay. Thanks very much, Kara. We'll talk to you again in May. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's edition of Mountain Radio Astronomy. If you'd like more information about the National Radio Astronomy Observatory, you can visit us on the web at www.gb.nrao.edu. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. Thanks for joining us.